We'll be looking into Colossians chapter 3 again as we continue our study through this high and heavenly epistle. And what we will consider this evening about worship and the importance of corporate worship and some of the characteristics that should be involved in it, we're not going to be looking so much as a technical sense of worship, but rather a spiritual sense. There is that which is called the regulatory principle, which we draw from Scripture those elements that should be involved in our corporate and public worship together. But there is also that spiritual element which is far more important even than the regulatory element. So let's pray. Our Father, we do thank Thee for the greatness and the glory of Thy salvation. We marvel at such a purpose with such glorious and sovereign love behind it that Thou, O God, wouldst send the object of Thine own heart's love into this world, Thine only begotten Son, that he would be the sacrifice for our sins. And we thank thee that that love is not temporary, not subject to ups and downs, but is everlasting, unchanging, as thou art. And we ask that as we look into thy word this night, that by the work and the enablement and the teaching of thy Holy Spirit, that thy word would enter into our hearts, that we would be able to indeed cry with the psalmist, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Grant us thy mercy as we have gathered in the name of thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall thank thee in his holy name. Amen. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17 in Colossians chapter 3. But we will also, of course, be drawing from the context. And it is absolutely essential if we're going to understand something of the passage to which we look that we also consider the passage before it in relationship to it. If you're going to study the scripture properly, there are three things that you have to be absolutely certain of that you are considering in a study. The first thing, context. The second thing, context. The third thing, context. So in Colossians chapter 3, we read verses 12 through 17. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Well, we have those things that affect and should govern our corporate worship as we gather together in a solemn assembly to worship God, our glorious God in spirit and in truth. And we're going to be looking at some of those things in the passage to which we draw our attention this night. But we will also find that the conclusion and the application is to the whole of our life in this world. Our corporate worship is to affect the way we live day by day. We read, of course, that we are to give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, we are to do all in his name. So that we consider that there is to be a controlling factor in all that we do, not just when we gather, but when we go back to our homes, when you go to your workplace, or spend time with your family or have social gatherings. We are also in a world of unbelievers so that we are governed by a different way than the world. The Lord Jesus says, if you are of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. We're not going to be loved by a world in sin. We're not going to be loved by a world under the dominion of the old adversary, Satan. If you belong to Christ, and if your life is a light in this world, there's going to be conflict inevitably with this world. But we're given divinely inspired instructions. The Apostle Paul tells us, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that the things he writes unto us are the commandments of the Lord. He gives us as was given to him. And as God by his spirit moved through the Apostle Paul to give us divinely inspired instructions. And in those who are in a genuine saving relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 2 that the word of God works effectually in you. It does its work in you. And so we have these divinely inspired instructions concerning the gathered church, really, in verses 15 and 16. Then we have a further and a fuller application in verse 17. Whatsoever you do in word or do a deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So that we understand that the way we relate to one another in Christ is to spill over into the way we live in the world and in every aspect of our life in this world. We learn the new way of life in Christ together, corporately, gathered 
for worship, instruction in the Word of God, mutual praise, thanksgiving, edification. This is to take place, of course, in the gathered assembly. But we live this new life as light in the Lord in the world that's governed by sin that has a different movement than ours is to be. And so the Apostle Paul, of course, when he instructs the Philippians, he instructs them in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom also your lights in the Lord. And so we are to bear our light in this world in which we live. And we do not simply learn of the importance of the gathering for worship service, but that which is to also characterize our worship. And it's for sure that our fellowship, and fellowship in the biblical sense is a very important word, it means to have in common. It means that all believers have certain things in common in Christ. And it's a very important word. So that the way this is ministered to each other will also profoundly, affound, uh, 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 profoundly affect the way that the word itself is received. It's very important the way we live toward one another, the way we act toward one another, the care we have for one another. This affects the reception, of course, indeed, of the Word of God. So those things which characterized us before God saved us by His wondrous grace, called us by the gospel, gave us life in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are certain things that we were characterized by that must be put off if we are to rightly receive the word of God. And there is no blessing like receiving God's truth, his word entering into our very being. So the Apostle Paul, or rather the Apostle Peter, exhorts in 1 Peter chapter 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be, you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. We have to be careful, very careful, because by nature we're very critical. Far more critical than we are loving. And so we have to have a work of God's Spirit in order to transform us into that which we should be and into the way we should walk and in the way we should relate one to another. And only, and we'll bring this out again in the text, only as a genuine love is exercised among us the love of God, as we comprehend it in Scripture. A love that's ready to help 
a love that will bear long with infirmities and conflicts, a love that refuses to retaliate. That's totally against fallen nature. A love that's always ready to forgive and forgive and forgive again. Only then we'll be in, we'll be in the position to worship together and build up one another in the faith of Christ. That's why we draw off from the context as in verses 12 through 14. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity. That's that love that is loving like God loves, like our Lord loves, which is the bond of perfectness. There's a solemn teaching our Lord gave us. And of course, there's a solemn commandment he gave us. It's called a new commandment. And in that new commandment, he teaches us that we are to treat one another just like he treats us. We are to deal with one another and love one another just like he loves us. And like we want him to treat us. And as our Savior charged on the night before Calvary, after he washed his disciples' feet, the application is general. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. This involves self-sacrifice, self-sacrificial giving. And I'm not simply talking about money and means. This self-sacrificial giving is giving of ourself. It's giving of ourself to be a help to our brother and sister in Christ. It's to do that which is absolutely contrary to everything in our own nation that's projected forth and promoted. It's to put each other's interest above our own. That really is what biblical Christianity teaches. It's a willingness to follow Christ, to follow Him in the fullest way possible. In 1 John 3.16, the Apostle John says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If ever there's a true revival, as it's called, that will be the norm, not the exception. Always, we're brought to the Christ who loved us, who gave himself for us. Always, he's to be central in everything, in all things. Always, our sight, the sight of our soul, is to be drawn to him. And the glory of his grace and the wonders of his character we're to learn of him. We're to grow in grace and in the knowledge of him. He's to be central in everything, in every message, 
you ever read Spurgeon and you love to read somebody that really walked with the Lord, you'll find that the Lord Jesus permeates all of his messages. No matter what he's preaching, no matter the text he's using, Christ is central, supreme. I want that for my own ministry. I want that for this church. I want him to be supreme in all, in everything that we do. Always our attention drawn to him. We can call to duty. We can exhort. We can do all kinds of things. But if it's apart from him, it can't be done. Through him, by him, by his grace, by the work of his spirit alone, can we begin to comply with what we're taught in the word of God. Always we're to learn of him. Not just for the sake of knowledge or believing the right information, but that we might know him in such a relationship, in such a way, in such a communion with him, that we become more and more like him. As the apostle Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image. From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. He's to be preeminent in all, in everything. So the content and the conduct of our corporate worship is to have a tremendous bearing upon everything that we are and everything that we do. And in this way, and in this way alone will we bring glory to the name of our Lord. So we look in these verses, we find in verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Well, there's something I think we can easily draw, again, from the immediate context as we apply it to this verse of Scripture and to this peace that's to rule in our hearts, if it's to rule among us. It has to have a rule within us to begin with. Where love rules, peace rules. You cannot separate these. Nor is it done, of course, in our text. So this connection cannot be broken without serious consequences. Love, peace, comes together. The one cannot be without the other. The one will not be without the other. If peace rules, there must be also the rule of love. So take note that the call to the rule of peace among us follows closely upon the command to put on the kind of love the apostle had just spoken of, the love of God. In verse 14, above all, these things put on charity which is the bond of perfectness. This draws all of the Christian character together. This begins the Christian character, apart from which there can be no Christian character. 
apart from which it's impossible to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this is a giving love. It's a self-giving love. It's a love that actually puts the interest of others above self. That's no little thing. That's against everything by nature. By nature, man is a selfish creature. When we came into this world born in sin, we were born self-centered. We learned to point everything to ourselves. <coughs> Children, when they are reproved by their parents, <laughs> oftentimes, what will the parents say? The world doesn't revolve around you. But that's what sometimes the way it is. Self-interest. That's the way of the world. That's why the world advertises to do everything for yourself. Biblical Christianity is to love others. It's to be willing to sacrifice for others. It's the willingness to be given to the good of others. It puts the interest of others above self. That's the kind of love the Lord loved with. Again, he's put forth as our supreme example. He's our Savior. We're not justified because he's our example. We believe and trust him who died for us and rose again. We look only to him for our salvation with a completely finished redemption. But if we are his and God has brought us to him, then he becomes our supreme example. That sometimes is not dealt with as it should be, I fear. But you have that throughout Scripture. You have it in our text. In uh, verses 14 and 15. Above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. But then, how do we do this? Verse 13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ, that's our standard, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So when you read in Scripture of the fruit of the Spirit, and Christian character is really described by nine things that's called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And guess what tops the list? Guess what tops the list to which everything must flow? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Without that, none of the other items that are in this, what is called the fruit of the Spirit, would have any meaning. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, meaning self-control there. You see how much of that has to do with our relationship to each other? 
it's worked out in this way. It would appear that nothing so grieves the Holy Spirit will prevent the reception of the Word of God and its operation, will hinder the work of God among us. Nothing so grieves the Holy Spirit but will cause, if this is missing, inward turmoil. Nothing so grieves as the absence the absence of love that can only be filled then otherwise with strife and contention, and murmuring and complaining and self-righteous criticism. That grieves the Holy Spirit. And we're commanded in Scripture as in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, going into chapter 5, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and, and so forth be put away from you. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5 he says, Be followers of God as dear children. And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling savor. You see, the believer has a living rule. It's a person. Our Lord. Our living Lord. This peace the apostle is speaking of, that must rule in our heart, this peace, though he's speaking of inward peace, this peace among ourselves that's to rule in our hearts and also together called in one body, it begins and it must proceed from a peace that's made between God and us. And what's the wondrous thing about the gospel? It's God who makes the peace. It's who, he who makes peace with us. We were at enmity against him. We wanted our own way. We wanted our own rule. We wanted to be our own God. We wanted to do what we wanted to do, irrespective of God and his truth and his word. We were lost in sin, transgressors, vile, selfish to the core, self-centered, self-seeking, wanting myself to be central. Had not God made peace with us, we wouldn't have any peace. As a matter of fact, we didn't have any peace before we knew it. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's inward conflict. There's contention. There's strife. There's selfishness. And so the Apostle Paul has taught us in this epistle in the first chapter about our peace with God. 
in Colossians chapter 1 and beginning here in verse 20. He says, You that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You look at verse 20. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. This comes because of what God has done. The peace he makes with us. God removed the barrier of the enmity that was between us and him. He made peace with us. He changed our attitude toward him. He not only worked for us, he not only did for us in Christ, by the cross, in a completed redemption, in the wondrousness of redeeming love, he worked in us through that cross by the work of his spirit to remove the enmity that was between us and him. He made peace with us. He changed our attitude toward him by the cross and by the meaning of the cross. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his cross. You see, that peace and that reconciliation is essentially all the same. He removed that. He showed us a wondrousness of a glory of salvation by his love and grace that was totally of him, which we would never have known, never have been drawn into, except by his own will and by his own love and by his own grace. Behind all of this peace made with us is that love, that sovereign love of God that's bestowed upon us who didn't love him. We were at enmity with him. We were positively undeserving of the least of it. That's why we who are saved by his grace marvel to this day how he could love such sinners. I marvel at that. How could he love such a one as me? I think the Apostle Paul marveled at that, didn't he? He loved me. He gave himself for me. He came into the world to save sinners. The Lord Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He broke down every barrier by that love. Every barrier between us who are saved and himself. God broke those barriers. And this kind of love alone will break down barriers between ourselves and enable this rule of peace in our own hearts and in turn among one another and the way we treat one another. Even when conflict arises, didn't we read that in the text? The context of chapter 3, again, verse 13. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another 
That's a continuous thing. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as, that's the rule, the standard, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. There is one factor that will bind us together in one body that can only come from our knowing of God in Christ. And that will produce peace and harmony among us. Knowing God in Christ. Knowing Him. In a living relationship to the living Lord. And in communion with Him. In Him being the object of our heart's desire and striving. The one we want above all. The apostle wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted. How? Being knit together in love. That love knits or brings all of the Christian graces, the characteristics of the Christian together, binds them together. That same love brings all the believers together, binds them together. We, being many, are one body in Christ. And everyone members one of another, as in Romans 12, 5. Notice also something in verse 15. Notice how closely being thankful follows upon the rule of peace in us and among us. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Well, we owe everything to our God. Everything to our God. Everything we owe to Him. Our life comes from Him. Every blessing we have comes from Him. From above, from the Father of lights, as James would write. Everything we have comes from God. And we owe Him a gratitude. And we owe Him an attitude of thanksgiving, of continual thanksgiving, of daily thanksgiving. All of our benefits come from him, none accepted. And in this always we are to be mindful to give thanks unto God for his unspeakable gift, to praise and thank him for the glory of the gift of his Son, for the great magnitude and the gloriousness of his salvation. So great salvation, it's called. And that our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our desires are drawn out to our Lord. Gratitude. Daily thanksgiving to God. Also promotes peace. 
It will promote peace in you. It will promote peace among the saints. It will promote peace in your home. An ungrateful spirit. An ungrateful spirit is one who, rather than recognizing God's bountiful kindness and the many blessings he gives, engages in murmuring and complaining. If you want to read something in Scripture that God hates, you'll find it to be murmuring, complaining. We don't have any reason to complain. We have every reason to give thanksgiving, to magnify the name of our God in thanksgiving. If we're unthankful toward God or others, we're going to be bitter. We're going to be critical. And that's not a good thing. And that's not a biblical thing for us and a Christian thing. And to see just how much that God hates an ungrateful spirit. Consider that in Romans chapter 1, there are those we learned he gave over to a reprobate mind. He gave them up. He gave them over. It's a solemn thing. And we learn there in Romans chapter 1 that they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. They didn't have thankful hearts. They didn't have praising hearts. They had murmuring, complaining, bitter attitudes. When one is engaged in inordinate self-love, lovers of their own selves, the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3, they are characterized among the characteristics as, quote, unthankful, unholy. You see how important thanksgiving is? And even more important, thanksgiving. This gratitude to God in the highest sense, due to his abundant grace toward us in the Lord Jesus Christ, should include thanksgiving for one another. The apostle gave thanksgiving for those he ministered to, to those to whom he brought the gospel, to those he prayed for and cared for. You have it in this epistle, this epistle in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, where he writes, We give thanks always to God and the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So, <clears throat> where there is this godly love, peace rules. Where there's the absence of this love, tension, contention, strife becomes the rule. But wherever it might be found, when it's absent, when self is central, all that can come from it is strife and contention and bitterness. And an unforgiving and an unthankful spirit. And without this thanksgiving, there's no peace. But we go on in our passage to verse 16. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Well, here is the greatest wealth we can have in this world. It's not in money or lands or things. It's the wealth of the Word of God. It's the wealth of the Word of Christ belonging to us. The wealth that comes to hearts that are united in Him. And still here, there's a primary application to the whole body of believers. The application is more really corporate than personal. It's in the church, in the members who are called in one body, called out of the world, called to be saints, to be set apart to God, called unto Christ, called in one body, that the word of Christ is to dwell, to richly dwell. Not simply with lip service, not something of formality to be opened and closed in a service, not as a traditional piece of church liturgy, but richly in our hearts and in our fellowship. The ministry of the word in the corporate gathering of the church is to be always central. The ministry of the word of God is central. That's why long ago, when the church buildings were, were put together hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that was understood. The ministry, the preaching of the word is central. That's why the pulpit was in the central of the building in the center of it. It became a symbol that this is the primary thing, the ministry, the proclamation of the truth of God, central always, not entertainment, not programs, the word of God proclaimed, expounded, taught, applied. The ministry central it's life-changing truths to be always kept before us. The word of Christ, though not simply to be ministered by the pastor or the preacher or evangelist. The word of Christ is to be ministered to one another. You're to minister to each other. You're to be a ministry to your brothers and sisters in Christ. In private conversations, God makes it abundantly clear in the book of Malachi that those who speak often to him one to another, that pleases him. And my, how good that is for those who do so. In private conversations, in encouraging one another to outlive your life in conformity to the instructions, the commands, the exhortations, of the word of God. You're to comfort one another in trials, difficult things faced, sufferings that come. You're to comfort one another, to give the promises of God when needed. 
to pray with one when needed. To seek to relieve them when needed. Lovingly, when one is walking out of the way in a wrong course, they're lovingly to be corrected, to be led in a right way, to be shown the danger of their wrong to themselves and to the glory of God and to be properly corrected and lovingly corrected. You're to remind one another of the duties that you're called upon to perform as those who confess Jesus Christ as your own wondrous Savior and Lord. Surely it must be in us individually. The word of Christ must dwell in you richly if you're to be able to minister to one another, if you're to be able to exhort one another. And the public ministry of the word of God is to train and enable you to minister to and build up one another in the faith of the Son of God. Not simply so that you can gather, not simply so that you can be under the ministry of the word and then go about the world and the ways of the world. No. It's to work in you in such a way that you become ministers to one another, that you minister, serve one another. That's what the Apostle Paul taught was the function of the public ministry. In Ephesians 4, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That signifies the saints are to pick this up, take it, and minister to each other. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The apostle here teaches in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Some commentators ask the question, does the word of Christ mean the word about Christ? Or does it mean the word from Christ? Well, I can settle that in my own mind. It means both. It means both. It is the word about him who is the essential word and the word from him. It has to begin with this. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In all things, in everything, with no exception, our Lord is to have the preeminence central in everything. And then his word is to govern the whole of our lives. Our lives are to be built up by the word of God, by the word of our Lord. You remember the Lord Jesus as he taught the Sermon on the Mount and came to the conclusion... Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man that built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. 
And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The rains are going to come. The difficulty is going to fall. The hard things are going to be there. Those who have the word of Christ dwelling richly in them, they're going to stand. They're going to stand in the judgment when the final floods come. The house built upon Christ and his word that built upon the shaky sand will collapse and fall. Oft times in this world when the difficulties come, one is ready to go. That word is to dwell richly in us. Spend your time in it. Think upon it when you get up in the morning. Carry it with you during the day. Read and meditate upon the scriptures, the word of God. Open the pure word of God and read it. Think upon it. Pray over it. Consider it. Plead with God to put it in your heart. Thy word have I hid where? In my heart that I might not sin against thee. Oh, it can be in the information in the mind, but it has to be in the heart, in the inner person, in the soul. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be its dwelling place. Be its house. So very important. You're to be careful to heed what you hear. To bow to the authority of this holy word of God. To assimilate its lessons into your being. And to put them into daily practice. It's to be given far more attention than a miser would give to counting his money. Far more attention than the things of this world that are made the plans for and delight the soul. No, no. Nothing to take precedence over God's truth. Over our Lord, his word and the things of him. I enjoy sometimes getting away from other duties as we did when we went on our sabbatical, getting alone with the Lord, spending much time in secret with Him, in prayer, in the Word of God, not just to indulge the flesh, but to walk with Him, to seek His face. There's no joy without Him. There's no rest without Him. As a matter of fact, sometimes that, that entered my cries of prayer. Lord, I thank You for the opportunity of rest but I cannot rest without thee. Thou art my rest. More attention given to the word of God, taken as the richest treasure you have for time and eternity. So loved as to be the supreme object of your thoughts and your meditation. Often I'm reminded of David. You read his psalms, I marvel. I marvel at the depth of his understanding of God and his ways and his communion with him. Aren't you? When you think of the warrior, the king of Israel, everything that was pressing upon him, 
Yet he can write as in Psalm 119, was it verse 97? Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then our singing. He brings in our singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Our singing as an important part of our public worship should be governed by the word of God should be for the purpose of exalting and praising our Lord and our God while expressing some truth of his glorious character and of his salvation. As in the context, it's corporate singing that's meant. That's a very important part of corporate worship. It's not for the purpose of exalting musicians or singers. It's certainly not for, in any regard to a form of entertainment after the world of fashion, which takes place now in so many places, claiming to be Christian churches. It's for the praise of God. It's for the edification of the whole body of believers who sing together for the glory and honor of God. It's singing to Him. As has been said, its primary reference is Godward, and its edifying work is the outcome. Our singing. Our singing is to be to God. Not so that somebody can hear my beautiful voice. I don't have one. Not so that somebody can say, oh, I just have chills running up and down my spine when I hear Sister Sutton just blurt out that tremendous song. No. We sing to God. We're to sing for His glory, not ours. We're to sing that He might be exalted and seen, not us. truth about him is to be expressed instructively fixing our interest upon the indwelling Christ we're to sing from the heart we're to sing heartily it to become an outward expression of inward grace in us the believer as a new person in Christ is to live in the realm of the grace of God in the knowledge of God's so great salvation and under the control of His Spirit. As to the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it's not really easily discernible and distinguishable between them in many regards, I think, but perhaps William Hendrickson was right when he wrote, at least to some extent. The term psalms 
has reference at least mainly to the Old Testament Psalter. Hymns mainly to the New Testament songs of praise to God or to Christ. There are those who only sing psalms. That's all they sing, Psalter. But the New Testament also has its songs and it centers in Christ, in the Lamb slain. They're songs of the Lord. They're hymns of Him as well. And spiritual songs dwelling on themes other than direct praise to God or to Christ. Congregational singing from the very beginning has been central. I'm not central. Preaching is central, but has been a very important part. When believers gather and together sing to the glory of God. It was so in the beginning of the Christian era. You may have heard it before, but the emperor Trajan, the Roman emperor, took notice of the Christians. He said they rose very early and gathered. You see, they wouldn't have been able to gather like we do in midday or something. They would rise even before the sun. They would gather together. And he said they would sing. They would sing alternately. Evidently, one would sing, the other would pick it up. One, the one group would sing, the other would pick it up. They didn't have hymnals, hymnals like we've got. And he said, they would sing praise hymns to Christ as God. And then finally, in verse 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed... Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. We have a general summation of the principle of life and conduct for a believer in Christ. We who've been saved from sin, what a glorious salvation. Saved from sin by God's grace in Christ and cleansed by the blood of his cross. Who are now delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We have access to God. We have access to the throne of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And our praying is to have in it a major part, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God. And then thanksgiving and thanks living is to govern our day-by-day lives in this world. While we wait the time that we shall be in our heavenly home and with our Lord. Whatsoever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God always. So we have some pretty important instructions here, don't we? In this third chapter of Colossians. Carolyn wanted me to make the announcement that the ladies will be gathering this Saturday for their uh, Saturday time in the Word of God and fellowship and prayer. We've got COVID again in our congregation, of course. Bob and Carol are fighting with COVID. Um, I talked with Carol this morning 
and her voice was extremely raspy. Um, I, and uh, do pray for them as they fight this thing at this time. And of course, Bob, uh, with his other afflictions as well. And then Carolyn has gotten word from Jeannie Henry, Pastor Tom Henry's wife in St. Louis, that it's hit their congregation again. Uh, some of their very afflicted members, they have uh, uh, one family that has a daughter that's severely afflicted, cerebral palsy, who, is, who has come down with it. Tom Henry's, um, Tom and Jeannie's son and daughter-in-law and their children, uh, especially Christian Henry, is very afflicted has uh, come down with it so there are others who have it as well so we want to remember them at this time so uh, do you have special prayer request That's got to be awfully painful. Think he's going to have surgery, you say, Friday? Wow. Well, Jim Sweeney, pray for Jim. Uh, he showed me that arm Sunday. It looked terrible. I had my dental surgery yesterday morning. I have a very good dentist, and he took care of me and did it in such a way that I was absolutely gratified. <laughs> so, and thanks, I went outside after he did it and gave thanksgiving to God. My car was a place of thanksgiving, but uh, he took care of it without having to mess up my teeth or anything. It was uh, a better way than I thought it could have been done. I have a very good dentist. If you need a dentist, I, I can recommend one. <laughs> and he's been my dentist for a long time. <clears throat> We're going to stop the, the live, live stream now so those at home can take pray, and we'll do so here. times on Wednesday evening in the Word of God and prayer are very important, aren't they? Very important. But ask the fellows to pray and uh, then we'll have a hymn.
to us the safety that we can. Be blessed to gather together, to come as a body in prayer. Thank you for this church and the way that you have added to it. Thank you for those who can be here present tonight. Pray that you would unite our hearts in prayer, in love for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and God our Father, and one another, as you have given us this bond in Him. Thank you for our pastor and his faithfulness and expounding the word to us. so many prayers and we pray that you would continue to safeguard the lives and health of those brothers and sisters that we pray for tonight pray for Bob and Carol at this time in particular we know we're all very concerned to hear that they have COVID we know that it can sometimes suddenly take a for the worst and pray that you would, would keep them and restore them to health and that they might be that you would see them safely through this. We continue to pray for Bob that you would that you would grant him relief from his other pain and health problems that he's going through. Pray for those in the St. Louis congregation that we've heard have COVID, Christian and his family and many others who, who have it and pray that they would make a full recovery with no permanent damage would be your will. Pray for Jim. I pray that this surgery would be successful uh, to repair his arm. I uh, pray that he would be able to, to regain um, full mobility and strength in that arm. Uh, we thank you that Ron's down surgery went well. I pray that uh, that would be fully healed and thank you that wasn't terribly invasive or painful, and I pray that you would were blessed in Christ's name. Amen. Let's see if I can find the hymn. Jesus love reminds me. What number is that? Four thirty-two. That's this is a hymn, <laughs> four thirty-two. Oh, what is it? What is it? What number? Four twenty-seven. You may stand. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. 
While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, oh my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, oh receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, oh leave me not alone, still support and comfort me. All my trust on
That's more than they did for us. <laughs> Taught us to drink water and get rid. That was it. Yeah. Well, we'll have to check on that. I'll check on the seat. Yeah, yeah. I'll check tomorrow. That's your pain. Gone away good. Probably just nerve. Sometimes they... Well, in the Manio, where they first dealt with it, they thought you were going to have to cut part of the teeth out of here and go in the bottom. He said, no, they didn't have to do that. Of course, he's old, kind of old school. Dr. Paul de Cunha is his name. Yeah, he's out not too far from where you live. <laughs> but... No telling. Oh, no. Things are incredible now. Yeah. He might, you know, you could check with him. He went in through the outside of my gun, up on the top, instead of the bottom, and went in and got the problem out, got the root out and everything. And didn't have to mess with the partial or the three teeth. They still there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I was thrilled. <laughs> I was trying to go through all kinds of stuff.